I'm going to be doing something a little different for the start of today's episode of Nautical Knowledge and Nonsense. Uh, today's episode is it's a serious topic. It's uh, amazing history, something everybody should know. Uh, but it is graphic, just so everybody knows that. Uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of topics, some of the most taboo things in pretty much any human culture. Yeah, things like cannibalism, killing loved ones and family members. I'm not going to try to do anything to be gratuitous in describing it. It's just I'm going to try to be a matter of fact. But it may offend some people. If it does, well... One thing to keep in mind is probably all of us had ancestors that at some point, in order to survive, had to do similar things. So, perhaps it's worth listening. And honestly, if that kind of stuff, that kind of history doesn't bother you, or the people and what they did doesn't bother you, well, there might be other things that do bother you in this episode. Because I'm going to be talking about butchering giant animals, and what that's like, and hunting them. And in some cases, hunting them to death. Or I'm going to talk about what was perfectly normal back then, demographically, politically, culturally, that is no longer normal today. And yeah, that might unnerve some people. One thing I found when you read enough history, it's not that you get numb to it, but you just kind of understand things have always been different. And the further back you go, I mean, at some point, you're going to find things that you recognize and things that you don't. And that's it. And no no one group or culture is ever going to match up to today, logically. But some people have a hard time accepting that. So maybe this will help get you to listen to this episode. I hope so. But it is a serious topic. And a little more serious than some of the other things. Though that said, honestly, I'm... Sometimes a lighthearted person, I might make jokes. I mean, sailors do. That's what we do in serious situations. So that might also offend you. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is I hope you'll still listen to this episode. But it is serious. So with respect to those who died in this history and to what the survivors endured, I'm changing the intro music. So rather than the upbeat kind of happy music you're used to hearing, uh, the intro is going to be a beautiful haunting tune called the Aaron Boat Song, as performed by uh, Riggy Rackin, third track of his Nauticus album. Here we go. lookout saw something unusual, a boat, impossibly small for the open sea, bobbing on the swells. The ship's captain, the 37-year-old Zimri Coffin, trained his spyglass on the mysterious craft with keen curiosity. He soon realized that it was a whaleboat, double-ended and about 25 feet long, but a whaleboat unlike any he had ever seen. 
The boat's sides have been built up by about half a foot. Two makeshift masts have been rigged, transforming the rowing vessel into a rudimentary schooner. The sails, stiff with salt and bleached by the sun, had clearly pulled the boat along for many, many miles. Calvin could see no one at the steering oar. He turned to the man at the Dauphine's wheel and ordered, Hard up the helm! Under Calvin's watchful eye, the helmsman brought the ship as close as possible to the derelict craft. Even though their momentum quickly swept them past it, the brief seconds during which the ship loomed over the open boat presented a sight that would stay with the crew the rest of their lives. First they saw the bones, human bones, littering the thwarts and floorboards, as if the whale boat were a sea-going lair of a ferocious, man-eating beast. Then they saw the two men. They were curled up in opposite ends of the boat, their skin covered with sores, their eyes bulging from the hollows of their skulls, their beards caked with salt and blood. They were sucking the marrow from the bones of their dead shipmates. Instead of greeting the rescuers with smiles of relief, the survivors, too delirious with thirst and hunger to speak, were disturbed, even frightened. They jealously clutched the splintered and gnawed over bones with a desperate, almost feral intensity, refusing to give them up, like two starving dogs found trapped in a pit. Later, once the survivors had been given some food and water, and had finally surrendered the bones, one of them found the strength to tell his story. It was a tale made of a whaleman's worst nightmares, of a boat being far from land with nothing left to eat or drink, and, perhaps worst of all, of a whale with the vindictiveness and guile of a man. The first podcast I ever listened to was actually on this topic. We were in the main hold of the Hawaiian Chieftain. My crew was working on blocks, so it was probably a rainy day. Uh, couldn't be out doing maintenance outside. So they were down below in the main hold, Hawaiian Chieftain, just servicing the blocks and listening to this thing on somebody's phone. And I remember asking the crew, I was like, well, what are you listening to? They said, oh, it's a podcast. I was like, huh, what's that? They described podcast to me, and I, I didn't quite get it. And I was like, oh, it's like radio, but but not. Didn't fully understand. And so I started listening to this podcast episode. It was done by three people. It was a man and two women. And the fellow, he had clearly only browsed the book called The Heart of the Sea, which is the tragedy of the whaling ship Essex. I say browse because he missed a lot of points in the book that were incredible to me and really cool. Uh, also, it was plainly obvious that these three people did not understand at all anything about boats, anything about history. Uh, I was not impressed. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna be polite and leave it at that. I was not impressed at all. It actually put me off podcasts for many, many years. Yeah, it wasn't until relatively recently I got into podcasts. And then, of course, well, you're listening to this. So you know how that story ends. In my opinion, these three folks, and certainly the fellow that had only browsed the book and not actually read it and knew nothing about what he was talking about, it, I mean, I get their point. Yeah, it's a cool story. You know, you want to get people excited about it. That's nice. But it wasn't good enough for me. And obviously, I had I'd read the book that, that he was referencing. I um, had only read it a few months or maybe a couple of years before, so it was relatively fresh in my mind. 
And my, in my opinion, despite the fact that their intent was good to get people excited about the story and they should learn more, it didn't do the history or the survivors any justice at all. Not to what they were going through, but also just not not what, what they their life was like. What, a, what life on a whaling ship was like. What life in Nantucket was like. So my hope with this podcast is to to do these folks some justice. But I also, I mean, there are many, many, many people that have talked about this story. This this was the most famous shipwreck in the world, certainly in America, prior to the Titanic. So a lot of books have been written about it. A lot of people have talked about it. My hope with this episode is to give you a little, a little more kind of a personal experience just from what it's like to actually sail on tall ships and use the wind for what it's like to be up close with these giant mammals. Not everybody's done that. I've been lucky enough to have, have had experience with, uh, with similar, with similar whales, not sperm whales, unfortunately. It's on my bucket list, but I hope that these insights will give you a little bit greater understanding of the story than, than somebody who's just doing, than maybe some of these other histories have talked about. There's even one or two things that I'm going to speculate on or put my two cents in that even the professional historian that wrote the one of the reference books, you know, either didn't understand or, or didn't care to to talk about. So I hope this will be interesting. And, you know, that's the goal. So one of the interesting things I found, one of the very first interesting facts I learned was how the sperm whale actually got its name. So quoting the book here. And just, you know, they're talking about how you burn down the blubber to, to get the whale oil. Uh, and then they're talking about, the, you know, in the sperm whale. Uh, but then the book says, quote, But its block-shaped head contained a vast reservoir of even better oil, called spermaceta, that could simply be ladled into an awaiting cask. It was the spermaceta's resemblance to seminal fluid that gave rise to the sperm whale's name. So, in case you folks don't know, seminal fluid is semen. So apparently this, this spermaceta looked like semen when you were ladling it out of the sperm whale. So that's kind of fascinating. I always thought for some reason it was the uh, the shape of the whale looked like a sperm, but that's not true. That's apparently not true at all. Another interesting fact brought up in the book, which I also didn't know, was most people heard of widow walks, where it's basically a, a, a platform that's mounted onto the roof and... Legends, of course, are that, oh, the widows would stand up there and look out to sea and, and you know, look, you know, pine for their long lost husbands after years and years when they've obviously long since passed. So apparently they were never called that. According to, when you go to the appendices of the notes in this book, in the back, uh, it's it's described in, um, in, a, in an old book about whaling, um, the, the person, the person, William F. Macy describes it as a raised platform on a roof of many old Nantucket houses from which to look off to the sea. Never called a widow's walk, captain's walk, or whale walk, as often written nowadays. And then in parentheses, it says in 1916. So it was, it was always just the walk was what it was called. Um, so, and that was back in 1916. So obviously, obviously it was not called, not called it prior. Yeah. Apparently the, the main purpose of those walks, it was a great way to look out at sea. That is true with a spyglass and search for returning ships. People would be interested in that news, knowing what ship was returning. 
Uh, and I would imagine, you know, well, I, I don't imagine. I mean, it was a big event when a whaling ship came back from sea. So the whole town would get together. So that takes time. So, yeah, being able to spot a boat a couple hours in advance of it arri its arrival would be very advantageous. Uh, also, apparently the walk was used, uh, apparently those walks were also used to put out chimney fires with buckets of sand. So they had a very practical purpose in that sense as well. Anyway, little little bit of interesting knowledge there that I learned. Yeah, the book does a decent job in describing what Nantucket was like from the very beginning, you know, prior to the white man showing up and, and the, what, you know, what we now think of in Nantucketers uh, or what we now think of as people in Nantucket. So prior to that, but then also like the early history of the European settlers there and the Americans and, and just how the, the island evolved over time and how the whaling evolved over time and how these boats had to go further and further out as they, as they hunted the whaling populations down to almost nothing around them. Uh, but there's a couple of cool stories that kind of illustrate too the just the the culture and how I mean this entire culture on this island revolved around whaling, and everybody from the youngest kid to the oldest adult was somehow involved with whaling. And there's a terrific story which I kind of want to delve into because it's a great story about a kid that basically harpoons his cat. So I'm going to read it real fast. Quote. One mother approvingly recounted how her nine-year-old son attached a fork to the end of a ball of darning cotton and then proceeded to harpoon the family cat. The mother happened into the room just as the terrified pet attempted to escape, and unsure of what she had found herself in the middle of, she picked up the cotton ball. Like a veteran boat steerer, the boat shouted, Pay out, mother! Pay out! There she sounds through the window! <laughs> End quote. So, pretty awesome. This kid was you know, playing, playing pretend whaler with the, um, <laughs> with the, the, the cat and the mother was approved of it. So anyway, that's pretty awesome. There's also a great poem that the first time I saw this was, well, I'll just read it really fast. So it goes like this. This is, um, instead of toasting a person's health, uh, an Nantucketer offered invocations of a darker sort. And then this is, this is the poem. Death to the living, long life to the killers. Success to sailors' wives and greasy luck to whalers. There you go. So the first time I saw the uh, the beginning of this poem, it was um, it was in a maritime museum, and they had a scrimshaw on a sperm whale tooth. And on the front of the, the scrimshaw, it showed like the whaling boats going out, you know, getting ready to go harpoon this whale. And maybe they just put a harpoon in, I can't remember. Uh, but then in the back, so, so this is, you had to look carefully because there was like a mirror in the back and it was a reverse image. So I had to read the, the writing backwards. I'm, and who knows, maybe they were trying to make it difficult, you know, for people, for people of more, who are more had, uh, for people's sensibilities. I have no idea, but on the back was this whale just gushing like blood geysering out on this scrimshaw piece. And, uh, and then it had that line death to the living long life to the killers. So that was my first impression of, that part of the poem ever, which I thought was pretty cool. It's like, wow, these guys, this is, this is hardcore. And then the, um, the second part, success to sailors, wise and greasy luck to whalers. I mean, yeah, that, that could be like, you know, I mean, who knows? Success could be the whaler coming home. It could be making lots of money, uh, greasy luck. I mean, that could be, you know, the, the grease from the blubber and whatnot. Uh, it could also have strong, strong sexual innuendos. The author doesn't, mentioned that but yeah i don't know i'm 
I've been around enough sailors in modern times. I can only imagine it was much worse. It was just a bunch of guys out at sea for years at a time. So there may be something to that. I don't know. If professional historians happen to come across that, and I'd, I'd love to know. Feel free to contact me. So, yeah, pretty awesome poem, I think. Yeah, also according to the book, apparently one quarter of the women over the age of 23 were widowed. Now, I'm not sure statistically how that works out, you know, because obviously in normal society, if women live a little longer than men, you are going to have more widows than, than widowers, logically, right? But but one quarter, that, that seems pretty high. So, and many, many, many people were married in those days. So, yeah, it was a rough, rough business. I mean, there were many orphans and one of the, the main people whose narrative we have of the whaling ship Essex and the events that happened is a fellow named Nickerson. He and his friends who were on board the ships, there were at least two, maybe three other fellows. I think it was three other guys. They were all fatherless. So all four of them had no fathers. The women apparently kept the businesses going. So one of the things I like about this book, it does, you know, it does kind of He's not super judgmental, the author, about the history, you know, and things that might be more like, oh, this is, you know, this, uh, I mean, almost considered taboo today. Like, yeah, whatever. It's just history. It happened. Uh, but he does mention a lot of things that are interesting to people of the current era. You know, for example, he mentions that women kept businesses and kept the community going. I mean, most of the men were out at sea for years at a time. They had to, you know, just like in World War II when the women took over all the factory jobs. Like this was just something that had to happen. People stepped up. Here's a great example of, of that, I think. Uh, this is called the Nantucket Girls Song, also mentioned in the book. I don't know the melody to it. I'm sure it's a great melody. But here's the song, the lyrics of the song. Then I'll haste to wed a sailor and send him off to sea, for a life of independence is the pleasant life for me. But every now and then I shall like to see his face, for it always seems to me to beam with manly grace. With his brow so nobly open and his dark, kindly eye, oh, my heart beats fondly towards him whenever he is nigh. But when he says, goodbye, my love, I'm, a, I'm off across the sea. First I cry for his departure, and then I laugh because I'm free. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty cool. Pretty good way of, uh, <laughs> of handling that situation. Um, yeah, he also does talk about, uh, and this is very interesting because obviously Nantucket, so there was a Quaker community, so very religious. I mean, people just were in America far more religious back then than they are today in the Western world, uh, in general, but the Quakers were especially so and their whole society, you know, was, was very different. So he does get into some of the Quaker society and, and the community there, fascinating stuff, but he does talk about, there's some evidence that there was some opium addiction uh, that was occurring behind the scenes. Uh, how widespread, who knows? We may never know. Uh, probably not extensively, but it was there. It's, there's definitely evidence for that. And there's also evidence that the women would have to take care of their sexual desires while the men were out at sea. So I'm just going to quote from the book. So quote, an island tradition claims that Nantucket women dealt with their husbands' long absences by relying on sexual aids known as he's at homes. Although this claim, like that of drug use, seems to fly in the face of the island's staid Quaker reputation, in 1979 a 6-inch plaster penis, along with a batch of letters from the 19th century and a laudanum bottle, was discovered and laudanum that's the opium, was discovered hidden in the chimney of a house in the island's historic district. Just because they were superior wives didn't mean that the island's women were without normal physical desires. Like their husbands, 
Nantucket's women were ordinary human beings attempting to adapt to a most extraordinary way of life, end quote. Yeah, so I think that's a wonderful way to, to put it. And the author does a very good job. That's one good example of how he, he can describe controversial history in a matter-of-fact way. Uh, and obviously, that's not to say everybody did this. I mean, my goodness, if, if you randomly pick somebody's house, if you if you, the house you stumbled upon was a frat house versus an Amish homestead, I think you're going to have a very, very, very different impression of American culture. So take everything, you know, just because evidence can be found doesn't mean it, it's widespread or across the board. That's one of the beauties about having a lot of different evidence in history and one of the necessities, really. Yeah, so the author the author does a very good job in in describing those you know some of the what, what's more interesting for modern audiences. He also talks about the Nantucketers' view of blacks because there were a lot of black sailors that served on the ships, and it's it's a pretty balanced view. I mean, he he you know he he describes I guess the Nantucketers would joke that you know the, the boats that would bring in the black workers and the black sailors you know, they call them slavers. The, the ships meaning like you know slaver like a, a slaving vessel slave trading vessel. I mean they're obviously just joking about it. I I would hope they wouldn't have said that directly to the the poor workers' faces. Uh, but the reality is these members were crew members, and you can read accounts where you know they they were often treated with respect on voyages and treated well. They also weren't treated well in some cases, and he kind of delves into that a little bit. Talks about uh, you know some of the discrimination between. Nantucketers versus non-Nantucketers, blacks versus white, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there, there still were there were tensions and differences back in those days as well, just like today. Yeah, but he does mention towards you know at the very end of the book, uh, he does talk about how there's an account in the 1830s. So this is you know the the events of of uh, the Whaling Ship Essex occurred in you know 1819, 1820. Um, so so contemporary. And he does talk about how there was a headline in the Nantucket Inquirer, which was their newspaper, about the greatest voyage ever made. The Inquirer here is referring to the almost all-black crew that returned from a voyage after only 14 and a half months. So that's a very, very, very short voyage for a whaling ship uh, with 2,280 barrels of oil, which is quite a lot of oil. So they had a very short trip, very, very good, successful trip, and it was almost all-black crew. It says in the book, quote, spirits ran so high that the black sailors and the crew paraded up Main Street, proudly shouldering their harpoons and lances. Less than 10 years later, an escaped slave living in New Bedford was invited to speak at an abolitionist meeting at the island's Athenium Library. The African-American's name was Frederick Douglass, and his appearance on Nantucket marked the first time he ever had spoken before a white audience. So, that, you know, and that, that's the legacy, obviously, that Nantucket wanted them to uh, to have. And we'll talk more about some of the black, poor black sailors. But I just think the author does a good job at uh, balancing out the history a little bit in that area. There are a couple things, though, where I do have to push back on the author. Uh, for example, I'm going to quote the book here. Uh, quote, at the time on Nantucket, it was standard practice to have the newly signed members of a whale ship's crew help prepare the vessel for the upcoming voyage. Nowhere else in New England was a sailor expected to help rig and provision his ship. That was what riggers, stevedores, and provisioners were for. But on Nantucket, whose Quaker merchants were famous for their ability to cut costs and increase profits, a different standard prevailed. All right, well, 
Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yep. You're going to save costs. I totally get that uh, by hiring your own sailors and using them for, you know, because you can charge them less than you would a professional rigging service or whatnot. Uh, but I do have to, I, I really disagree with the author in that, you know, he only mentions that point and that may not even be the main point. You're going out whaling for two to three years. You, there is no infrastructure in the part of the world where they're going whaling. The South Pacific, good luck. Like you got nothing. You're not just going to pull into port and be like, hey, I need a bunch of new sails. I need a new spar and I need, you know, some iron rings made and hoops and this and that. You're like, no, that is not going to happen. So these boats had to be very, very, very self-sufficient. And every member of that crew had to know that rigging and they had to be able to repair it and they had to be able to fix every part of it. And that's just reality. So yeah, having your crew do all the uprigging and doing all that labor is a really, really smart move, in my opinion, uh, because they're going to get knowledge. They're going to be able to better service that boat out at sea for years at a time because it's going to have to happen. It just is. And it could be the difference between a successful voyage and unsuccessful voyage, between life and death. So there, there are many good reasons for them to do that. In addition, you save some money. So that's also a win. I totally get that. But that's probably not the main reason, in my opinion. Um, but that's just my opinion. I don't have any historical data to actually back that up. Yeah, well, let's get straight into the, the voyage, shall we? Uh, so he does talk about just kind of boat life and uh, just why the routes are what they are. I'm not going to get into too much detail there. I think people, there are other people that can do that, or you can look that up yourself. Uh, but what I did find really interesting is one of the first bad things that happens to whaling ship Essex is that they are in a squall. And the crazy part to me is they had their stunsels set. So the stunsels, their sails that it's, it's kind of hard, they kind of look like ears. Is one way to describe it. Like picture, picture your standard square rigger boat with all the sails set. Now take your topsails, which are the kind of middle. If you have like a, you know, coarse topsail to gallant, it's the middle big sail that you see. And then extend, put extend two little booms or logs out on either side of that, and then put a sail there, a square sail on either side. It's you know kind of rectangular square uh, sail. Uh, and those are the stencils. And you'll see them often in paintings. You'll see like, oh my gosh, you'll see like crazy white water and these stencils and everything's flying and it looks really great. And in reality, that thing would have probably been ripped off <laughs> ages prior to that because uh, that's way too much wind for stencils. They are light wind sails. And apparently a whaling ship Essex, uh, they saw Squall, you see it coming, and the captain, for whatever reason, still had the stencil set. Oh, just so folks know, stunsels, I'm, I'm slurring the word, which is my understanding of how sailors said it, but it's studding sails. If you actually read it, it'll look like studding sail. They also have the top gallants, or to gallants is what I'm, I'm going to call them. So they apparently took in some of the to gallants. Those are his topmost sails, the mizzen and the fore to gallant. But the captain, uh, whose name is Pollard, Captain Pollard left the main to gallant up and also the stunsels. And... You know, the book speculates, the author speculates that it was maybe to test the, the boat and the crew. But yeah, stunsels are very light wind sails. They are tricky to get down in the best of conditions because they're not, you know, it's not like you just send the crew aloft and they just wrap the sail up and call it good. Like they can't, you know, they don't stretch out on, you know, the, the crew doesn't lay out onto those yards, the little stencil booms. So to get them down, it's, it's quite an operation. And then in heavy winds, like it's, it's very difficult. Good luck. 
So for him to still be flying the stencils and the to gallon, it's it obviously there's a lot of questions there. Why why would you do that? And you know, one thing it is true, like it's a, it's a good idea to to test your boat and its limits. That that's definitely true. But you got to do it in a controlled way. Well, if you listen to the previous episode I did with Captain Barry from the Merry Day, uh, he's the, the main windjammer captain. We, we don't talk about it in the episode, but one of the, the gems of wisdom, and he has many gems of knowledge and wisdom that he shared in that episode. But one of them that we did not share was what he called pushing envelopes. And I remember him saying, Johan, you know, here's, here's the thing. You can push one envelope and usually get away with it. Usually not a problem. So, oh, you want to test the ship's rigging in heavy winds. Okay, yeah, you might be able to get away with that envelope. But if you start throwing in too many envelopes, two or three, what can happen is when one of those envelopes opens up, bam, all three open up, and then that's when you have a catastrophe. That's when you have a real problem. So, for example, yeah, you should go out. You should test your ship's rigging. You should be familiar with how the boat handles in heavy winds. That might not be the first thing you want to do. You might want to train the crew and make sure you can get those sails in in a flash in good conditions, like without even thinking, and then build up to, okay, well, now let's try it with heavier winds and see how they handle. Or maybe just set one sail. Maybe not test the entire entirety of the rig. Maybe try a reefed sail, you know, and then see how quickly you can get that in in heavy winds. That might be the better way to go about it. Uh, you know, train the crew, make sure they're solid. Because if the crew isn't solid, well, okay, so now you're testing the rigging. Oh, and the crew's not ready. So now you've opened, now that's another envelope. So that's two envelopes right there. You know, and then, I don't know, throw in the third. Maybe the pumps haven't been working properly and they only work, you know, part of the time. Oh, that's a third envelope. That could be a problem. Maybe you're in a narrow channel. Probably not the best time to test the rigging and, and how it functions under under heavy conditions in a narrow channel with a crew that's untested. With You know, you see what I mean? So one thing goes wrong. Oh, you know, the rigging falls apart. Well, now I have a crew that doesn't know what they're doing. Now you're in a narrow channel where you can't maneuver. Now you see how it goes, right? So you do have to think about this when you're training yourself, when you're learning a new vessel, when you're doing all this stuff. And there's a lot to be said about going out and pushing a crew. Absolutely. It does a lot of good. Most people honestly learn really, really well from a little bit of adversity. Ah, heck, they learn well from a lot of adversity as long as they don't break them. And the reality is, uh, too, that a crew that's been, that has suffered together bonds very, very fast, extremely fast. And I mean, that's why you have hazing. That's why it exists, or at least used to exist until a few years ago. Uh, you know, you don't want to hurt people. You don't want them to be traumatized for life. But, you know, normal people, like, yeah, a little bit of, oh, this is, was really rough. And, oh, my gosh, we were treated really badly. And, but now it's like, bam, those people are bonded. They're solid. They're part of the group. And, you know, it's just an old-fashioned way of doing that. Very effective. In this case, though, it could have, it can have the opposite effect, which is why on earth was the captain setting stencils and the main topsail? And, oh, we didn't get through this. We lost a bunch of rigging. We're delayed. You know, the one of the whale boats smashed up. Like, that's not good, right? Like, and so it can end up the crew questions the captain and it creates animosity and problems and superstition and this and that. So, you know, in this case, it's not good. Also in the description of the scene, he talks about, you know, some the two basic options you have in a squall on a square rigger 
he mentions pointing up into the wind, which I I don't know why you would do that on a square rigger. I mean, I, I just think that's a great way to have your entire rigging come falling backwards on top of you. Uh, it's just not designed to to take that much pressure from the front. But uh, but so the common one was was to just run with the wind. I mean, yeah. So for hundreds, if not thousands of years, this has been a standard practice. You know, I mean, even even the very first Viking that has been given credit, you know, to discover Vineland or or you know the North America, a uh, fellow by the name and, and I'm going to butcher this, folks. All my Icelandic speakers out there, I am so sorry. I'm all all zero of you <laughs> as of as of today. Uh, I'm going to butcher it, but uh, Bjarni. Harry Jolfesson, so I, I think I butchered that pretty pretty well. But this fellow, I mean, my, my layman's understanding of it was he was running for days, for days downwind, just, just trying to survive, uh, just running downwind while in a, a massive storm. And uh, obviously did survive. And then he came across a land that he had never discovered. And he knew to you know get back to where he came from. He knew he had to head north and he had to head right at some point <laughs> once he got to the right latitude. But uh but yeah, in, in in trying to escape a storm for days at a time, he ended up accidentally discovering North America, which eventually led to Leif Erikson, of course, which was the first uh, first credited European expedition out and Viking expedition out to Vineland. So there you go. It's some historical evidence that this has been the case for a long time. You want to run from the wind. So he kind of delves into some of the details there and, you know, how the, how the squares and the the, the rearmost sails on the ship will shadow the, the forward sails. You can get them in a little easier, that kind of thing. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. It's a good description of squall. I know my, my personal experience, I remember the first time I was in a squall, it was also on the Mary day that we were talking about with Captain Barry. I remember Barry did the prudent thing. Like we could see it coming. It was a black line of clouds, uh, no thunder and lightning, nothing crazy. Like what, what these guys on Whaley ship Essex saw. I mean, they had a pro like, Dangerous, dangerous squall, insane winds. Um, but basically, you could see it coming on, on our boat. It was you know, black clouds in the distance, and the captain just said, "Yo, we're taking in sail." And we took in, we took in an all sail, if I believe. We took in every single sail we had. No, I don't remember. We might have reefed significantly. Regardless, we took in quite a lot of sail. And then when we got hit with the squall, the wind went from you know a nice five, maybe five to eight knots to bam, like 20 to 30 knots instantly, instantaneous. And had we had all our sails set, it would have been a major problem. You know, it would have been very, very hard to control the vessel. Certainly almost impossible to bring in those sails. They might have been damaged. I mean, a lot of bad things could have happened. So by being aware, situationally aware, by not hesitating to take in the sail when that happens, that should just be procedural. Oh, you see a squall in the distance. Uh, taking a little bit of sail, you could always make up the time later, you know. But yeah, so that was an excellent decision by Captain Barry. And yeah, I learned a lot. I learned a lot that day. And it was good to experience that squall, uh, but also not experience in disaster form. And and sometimes these things happen. I mean, I, I remember, you know, we were, I was docking with uh, a fellow who, uh, Jordan Little, who you'll, you'll hear in a later episode, I'll be interviewing him. But we were coming to dock. I was letting him dock the Lady Washington and it, the winds were coming, not calm, but it was like nothing, like five knots, very, very, you know, no big deal. So I had him docking the boat. All of a sudden we got slammed. This was in California, in Ventura, Southern California. We got slammed by the Santa Ana winds, which are famous, the devil's wind. And uh, yeah, basically on, in, you know, 
in the springtime, you get these hot, dry winds that come down from the land and it can just slam you. And so we, 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 we basically, you know, got instantly hit with 20, 25 knot gusts, maybe even a little more. And right away, I was just like, switch, bam, I was in charge of the boat and I could not keep the vessel. We just weren't going to dock on the side I had hoped, but, um, but we didn't have time because my vessel was very quickly being pushed over to the other side. And the only option I had, aside from hitting the dock with, with the boat, which you know would have been the end of the world, right? Probably damaged paint, probably not a big deal. But you know we might have chipped some of the wood. You know, I don't think we would have destroyed the vessel. But um, a decision had to be made, and I could tell our our crew wasn't going to be able to get our fenders up and untied in time to get over to the other side of the dock. But luckily, Hawaiian Chieftain was docked to our starboard side, which is the way we were drifting. And um, they were on the other side of the dock that we were about to hit. So I yelled at the chieftain crew that was standing there watching us. <laughs> and I said, get your roving fenders over here now. And so they did. They raced and, and were able to get their roving fenders untied and plopped them down just in time. So the boat hit their roving fenders. So good on chieftain crew for being very quick with that. And yeah, yeah. So we, we docked at that dock and there was no need to even send dock lines at that point. We were 100% on that dock. Uh, though we obviously did. Anyway, the point is, uh, well, the point is things can hit you sometimes really fast, so you need to be able to react, and, and sometimes things are unavoidable too. The lesson I learned in that one, in hindsight, I could have easily avoided that situation because I could have come in early, I could have come in a lot faster, because I do recall seeing the horizon and thinking, wow, I've never seen like a brown haze on the horizon quite like that. And it wasn't getting bigger. I watched for that. It wasn't getting bigger. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was just there was this brown haze that was something I hadn't really ever seen before. Now I know better. If you see a brown haze on the horizon, you probably should get into dock soon because it could very quickly turn into the Santa Ana's blowing like snot towards you if you're in Southern California. Anyway, a little bit of the knowledge there, I guess. A little bit of experience. But back to the Wayne Ship Essex. That's why you folks are here. Now, one of the things I'd like to point out in, in just in general in history, it's so a lot of history gets lost over time. And sometimes we only have one source. There's only one story. And I'm I'm not even talking about just like one culture or group side of the story. I mean, literally, like we might just have the account from a general that was in a battle or from this person that went on a long journey, just one account and nothing else. And it really, you know, this this squall kind of illustrates why it's so important to have at least, I mean, as many different sources as you can. The two main accounts that we have from the Whaley ship Essex and his, her voyage, uh, you know, the two main accounts, uh, big big narratives we have. We, we have a few other accounts, but the main ones are uh, Owen Chase, and he was the first mate aboard the ship, so he was second in command, uh, Pollard being the captain. So we have we have Chase's account. Uh, and then there's there's Thomas Nickerson uh, also wrote a book about it, and he was the cabin boy. And so thankfully, thankfully we have these two different accounts because you can see how different they are. So I mean, I just quote from the book here. So apparently Pollard had proposed turning back, and then Chase over overruled him because uh, this is early on in the voyage. They could have turned back, but you know, for for many reasons, chose not to. Uh, and Chase did not want to do that. So quote, as Chase would have it. The knockdown was only a minor inconvenience. And then quoting him, we repaired our damage with little difficulty and continued on our course, uh, end quote for him. But Nickerson knew differently. Many of the Essex men were profoundly shaken by the knockdown and wanted to get off the ship, end quote. 
Yeah. So, you know, thankfully, thankfully we have both these accounts and just, I mean, folks in general, I mean, so much history gets lost. And if you're cleaning out an old attic in an old house and you come across a book and I mean, even if you don't know what it is or what it's about, or it just seems like some silly information, you know, like, please, 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 please find the local historian, find somebody that's into history. Just give it to them. Don't even worry about it. Just like they will take care of it. I guarantee you there are people out there that dedicate their lives to learning more about history and finding lost historical facts. And the thing that doesn't matter to you that you think is just a silly, oh, whatever, nobody's going to care about this, might change people's understanding of the world, might give us a more well-rounded understanding of history. So, uh, you know, I mean, the only reason we know every single crew member on this voyage was because somebody had discovered in an addict, or I forget where, what the context was they talked about it in the book. I, I just simply don't remember. But somebody had discovered this piece of paper. That was tucked away in a book and, you know, there you go. So, so thank, you know, thankfully we have all the crew member names, which we wouldn't have had somebody just said, oh, it's this and tossed it. So please folks do that. Do not destroy more history than has already been destroyed. Yeah. And, you know, especially if it's diaries and things uh, like I, I find personally, you know, when I read history and, and read the actual primary sources, like you, you really truly get a, an understanding of things. I mean, don't get me wrong. Logbooks are very useful. Um, in fact, they're they're being used today to advance science, to advance our understanding of you know, weather patterns, for example, because captains would ships captains would log all that information, so we can make better weather models. And you know, it's one of the reasons weather modeling has gotten so good. But those logbooks are very very limited, and sometimes things are described. Obviously, if you as a one person and they want to be described as being good, then they're not going to talk about one thing, but they might talk about another. They might just brush off something that was actually a big deal to the crew and, you know, completely ignore the fact that the crew, you know, very oftentimes people aren't honest. It's just how it is. But also logbooks are, by their nature, just kind of drab and, and dull. I mean, you'll have the, the most amazing thing in the world happen, and it's described the same way as the most mundane thing is, you know, described. You know, there's a great example of it in the Patrick O'Brien novels where... You know, I talk about the Patrick O'Brien novels, I think, way back in episode three. But uh, Jack Aubrey's sitting there and he's describing how, oh, yeah, you know, this this one fellow died. And, uh, you know, oh, and this barrel of pork was rotten. And that's it. Like, that's the log entry. But then he goes on to, in his mind, to think about how this fellow had such an impact on the crew and made music and was just a lively, wonderful human being. And now he's gone and he's on the same level as a barrel of pork that was rotten. You know, that's how it's logged in the logbook. I remember from personal experience, I was on a ship where this ship, basically they had ran in, rammed into another vessel because the sails were up and, and they had reduced visibility due to the sails is my understanding and just went full bore, bam, right into another sailboat. So this is a tall ship, uh, a, a, a tall ship hitting another vessel and they demasted this vessel. So the, the, the tall ship that hit the other sailing boat completely demasted the other sailing boat. Uh, the tall ship had its bowsprit ripped off. I mean, so this is a big impact, right? Like people could have died kind of thing. I, I would say catastrophic damage, certainly to the other vessel. <laughs> so knowing this, I was like, huh, I wonder what the logbook has to say about it. So I went back and I looked it up and it wrote, it basically summarized the event as a minor entanglement. That was it. On this this hour, this time, we had a minor entanglement with this vessel. And so in my opinion, not accurate at all, but you know, nobody died. So I guess, I guess on some level you could argue it was a minor entanglement, 
But yeah, it does show you how limited logbooks are. So the more sources you can get on things, the more personal sources you can get uh, where people can extrapolate and say what they were thinking and say what their thoughts are, their feelings, that kind of thing, the more accurate history. So please, folks, don't throw away those old journals and those old those old books that you think are so, you know, oh, they're just taking up space. Like they, they might matter to somebody, if not to you. So please save that history. Give it to people that care. All right, enough lecturing. Let's get on to the story. My goodness, I'm so sorry about this. Here we go. Uh, so the whaling ship. So he does talk about whaling, and and it's just, oh man, it's it's pretty wild stuff. I don't know. It, like they would draw. So they had you had the large ship, right? And then you had these small whaling boats, and they would drop these these relatively small whaling boats. They're only you know 20 feet long, 25 feet long, and these guys would go out, and then they they harpoon these massive creatures, massive. And I mean, some of them are bigger than, than we have whales today. Like, like the sperm whale today, if you look it up there, they say, oh, they're between 60, 65 feet long. Uh, but these guys, and there's, there's actual bone evidence that we have that some of these whales would get to be 80, 85 feet long, even 90 feet is one account. The whale that, all, that stove in and, and ultimately sank the whaling ship Essex, uh, they claim it was an 85 foot long male bull, old bull. A sperm whale so which they don't get that big today folks um one, one of the problems with hunting is we hunters and i don't think they you know they don't do this on purpose obviously but uh in looking for oh my gosh that's the you know the, the animal with the most antlers that's the animal with the biggest tusks that's the biggest guy you know big animals tend to get hunted to extinctions yeah, and he he describes just how they go about hunting these massive animals, and um, and it's it's pretty cool. Um, unfortunately, some of the the best descriptions I found were in were in the the notes of the book in the back. So um, you know, which is too bad because I, I think they're they're pretty interesting. Um, so I think I'm going to assume most of you know generally how the the whaling works. I mean, you you go out there, you harpoon the animal, it takes off, it runs you know, swims away as fast as it can. And uh, they, there's a rope attached to the harpoon. And then the idea is that the little whale boat gets dragged by the whale for sometimes miles, you know, and they called it a Nantucket sleigh ride. So it's, you know, supposedly you're they're They're being dragged along faster than a horse can gallop. I mean, it was insane. And it had to have been thrilling. It had to have been scary. It, it, it just, I'm not going to lie. Like, like I love whales. I don't think they should be hunted. But dang it, I don't care what planet you're from. This is incredible. <laughs> like what these guys were doing was nuts. And there is a great and and I don't think you know, you know oftentimes in modern times we want to portray everything as oh this is poor tragic whales and the the men obviously you know they might have empathized. I don't know. I think they probably were thrilled by it honestly. And there's a description of the whaleboat crews uh, in the notes in the, the book's notes that uh, you know on whaling for glory. And so this is this is in the notes. They're quoting a, another, you know, he's quoting another book in the notes directly. Uh, they raced and jockeyed for position, and in a close finish, with boats jammed together at the flank of a whale, have been known deliberately to foul one another. So they're talking about the the other whale boats are fouling each other to dart harpoons across each other's boats, imperiling both the boats and the lives of all all concerned, and then to ride blithely off fast to the whale, waving their hands or thumbing noses to the unfortunate comrades struggling in the water. So, I mean, it just, yeah, <laughs> they were, they were, uh, they were pretty crazy out there. 
Yeah, so there's another um, another quote in the notes. So basically, one of, one of the authors talks about dying whales vomiting pieces of squid the size of whale boats. So these are the giant squid that the sperm whale hunt. And yeah, he describes them the these poor whales when they die and in their death spasms they vomit out all these this whatever they've been eating. And so they're vomiting out pieces of squid the size of the whale boats, which is it's over twenty feet long. Like huge. <laughs> so it's just I don't know, the scale of it is is it blows the mind. And and I mean I've been lucky enough to be up close to to some of these animals, like like really close. Like we had on on one of the boats I was on, the Tolly Moore. We, the whales, I mean, they would come to us, you know, it's at some point you, you know, there's only so much you can do to avoid a whale. And I remember one time we had this baby humpback and it came up and it nuzzled our, our big steel hull, you know, 500 ton steel hull boat. And, and it was crazy. I mean, you could see mama whale there. She was off close and she was breathing a little, little more than normal for a humpback. Like, you could tell she was agitated. I don't know if that's me just, you know, animism and, and me me projecting myself onto that poor mother, but I, I genuinely think she was concerned. And this baby, this this tiny little humpback baby, which when I say tiny, this thing was like 25 feet long, but it, you know, it came up to our boat and it nuzzled it. And I mean, even then, like it's a baby and the size of the sucker was, was huge. You know, when it's only 10 feet from you it's like whoa this is a big animal and that's a 25 footer you know then you imagine like an 80 foot 85 foot long sperm whale i mean i i honestly you can't it's it's hard to imagine and and so i remember this baby coming up and nuzzling the boat and then it kind of turned on his belly and it showed us his barnacles and then it did a barrel roll and a loop-de-loop, and it looked at it with it, it looked at us with its big eye, and it did this for like 20 minutes. It was it was absolutely adorable and just acting like a baby, but a 25-foot-long <laughs> baby. And uh, but yeah, I was just amazed at the size and the strength in this little baby, you know. And and I have seen a couple other whales up close. Um, they're all well. I remember we had two humpbacks, and when. I mean, I, I could have been further than 20 feet away and just you could see their tails under the water and, and just the the power of it. I mean, I these are very, very powerful animals. And so that's what these guys were hunting. They're hunting massive animals. And and yeah, they, these animals would kill the whalers sometimes. They'd take them out. It, and it was uh, it was bloody. It was bloody, brutal business. I mean, when the whale died, you know, they describe in the book how the spout, the whale would spout instead of water, it was blood, just geysers and geysers of blood gushing everywhere. So these guys would be covered in it. And of course, that congeals and that, you know, even the smell had to have been horrific. And then you rip the animal apart and you're, you're cutting off its flesh and, you know, and, and just <laughs> whalers would gag at the smell of the, the darn thing. You know, and they're doing this for days too. So it, it doesn't get better. <laughs> the smell of a dead animal does not get better over time. So pretty, pretty crazy stuff. Uh, I'm going to quote from another book. It's called The Whalers, and it's a Time Life series that, God, I was lucky enough to get at a used bookstore in its entirety, all 22 volumes uh, of various different nautical-themed books, you know, it's from the from the ancient times all the way to, you know, U-boats, basically, in World War II. But this, uh, so this is The Time Life, The Seafarers is the name of the series, and the, this particular book is... The whalers. Yeah, so in this book, they talk about they talk about one of the tricks used to catch the the whales. And it's 
I mean, it's heartbreaking. I don't know if it's just that I'm a father and just something changes hormonally when you become a, a parent. But uh, this this one actually really tugged tugged at my heartstrings quite a bit when I read it. Yeah, so in the book, they show an image, and uh, basically you have a baby sperm whale. Here's a, here's a quote from the description. A mother sperm whale rears from the sea to cradle her mortally wounded calf in her jaws in its mid-19th century whale, watercolor. On occasion, whalemen would harpoon a baby whale, hoping to lure the fiercely protected mother into a rage. And so it shows the, the mother sticking her head out of the water down to the, her jawline, uh, straight up in the air. And uh, she's holding the entirety of her baby sperm whale in her jaw. And you can see the blood coming from the harpoon. And the, the whalers are, are just sitting there um, standing by to, to harpoon the mother. So it's, yeah, it's it's really sad, uh, obviously. Um, and before before folks get too angry and, and, oh, my gosh, these horrible whalers. And, oh, the, the Europeans. And how can they do this? And the Americans and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I just would like to point out that other like native tribesmen do this trick too, not not necessarily with whales, but uh, you know the. I mean, well, first of all, hunters do it in general. Like, what do you do? You're doing a mating call and luring, you know, the, the animal in closer using a mating call. Like that's pretty common uh, throughout hunting throughout the world. It's not uh, it's not just people of European descent that do this. And I do know in uh, the Pacific Northwest, the you know the giant sea otters that were hunted to extinction were now to be fair it was it was uh, americans and europeans that that were that were trying to get this otter fur they weren't the ones doing the hunting so when i say the natives hunting them to the extinction it was you know, it was because of the americans and the europeans that and the demand from them that caused this which was because of the demand from china that had long ago hunted their otters to extinction and so i mean are you getting the, the point here? Are you kind of figuring this out that this is complex? So, so as you can see, his, history is complex. It's just how it is. And my understanding of it is one of the ways the natives would catch the otters is they would mimic the call of the children, the little babies. And the mothers would come out and investigate and bam, they get the mother. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty brutal stuff. Not going to lie. Uh, one thing I found really interesting in, in this particular book, too, is uh, a description of the mating of the sperm whales, which I had never read or seen. So I thought it was kind of cool. Here's a quote. So this is after the, the bulls have done their fight and figured out who's the, the alpha, who's the boss there. Uh, quote, to the victor in such herd contests went the harem. Occasionally, the whalemen also encountered the awesome intimacies of mating sperm whales with a 50-ton monster playfully leaping out of the water to impress his partner, followed by an hour or more of splashing, rubbing, and nuzzling, before the brief but momentous climax, as the two huge bodies rose from the water in a perpendicular embrace. End quote. So I thought that was pretty awesome. Oh, one last little um, interesting side note that I, uh, I discovered uh, reading this particular book, The, the Whalers. Uh, was that there was a, a native tribesman that was actually a captain. He, he had become a, a, a whaling captain. So, so one of the big tribes that they had in the area, Massachusetts and in Nantucket, it was the Wampano Wampanoag tribe. And apologies if I pronounced that wrong, but I believe it's Wampanoag. And uh, they were the, the original native inhabitants. And his fellow uh, Amos Haskins, he, had, he became a whaling captain and uh, went whaling in the 1830s, and eventually rose to be a master, 
earning a fortune sufficient to settle his family in a cozy New Bedford house. So I thought it was an interesting side note for those of you interested in finding Native American historical figures. Yeah, so back to the whaling ship Essex and the whalers. So they had headed out after... Actually, there's a, there's a really interesting a- anecdote as they're headed north. Uh, they stop in the Galapagos Islands, and they had a sailor on board who, you know, a young man who was a prankster, and they were capturing the tortoises for food. And apparently these tortoises tasted really good. Like they made great, you know, they made great meals. Uh, they lasted forever. I mean, months and months, I mean, no water with, with nothing. They would, they would just be able to live. So the whalers would would pick up a lot of these tortoises uh, in the Galapagos Islands and use them uh, to supplement their food for, for these long voyages. Well, on one of the islands, one of the sailors decided to play a prank. And so he lit a fire and it got out of control, this grass fire. And it just effectively, I mean, the, the, the descriptions of it is it basically burned the entire island. Hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of tortoises were, were killed. And, and this island became one of the first islands to lose its entire tortoise population. You know, there, there are many islands in the Galapagos, but, um, but this one, the tortoises never rebounded. So they, they all died out. So definitely this prank was part of that. And that was on the whaling. It was the whaling ship Essex. It was this voyage. And, uh, and they describe it as like, as the boat sailing away, you could just see this, you know, red, you know, the horizon lit up in red in the nighttime and just sounded horrific. But they head out to the, the middle of the South Pacific and are basically in the middle of nowhere. I mean, they're a thousand miles from anything uh, west, over a thousand miles west of, uh, and, and when I say miles, I mean, I'm talking, well, I'm talking statue of miles, but I, I would, I would, I would guess they were probably about a thousand miles, nautical miles or more west of the Galapagos. So literally middle of nowhere, uh, just by the necessity and the lack of whales due to all the hunting that had been going on. And at, that time, according to this book, in the notes of the book, there were only 75 whaler ships in the Pacific in 1820, which is, you know, which is when these events occurred. So yeah, there's not a whole lot of boats out there at all. It's massive, massive, massive. You can't imagine how big this ocean is. And, and they're surrounded by islands that are little known and, and lots of stories. And we're going to get into some of that a little later. But as they're out hunting whales, so they had the whale boats in the water. They're out hunting the whales. And then there was just a skeleton crew on the main whaling ship. And so what happened next is uh, Chase, the chief mate, who was on one of the whale boats out, in the, um, uh, out hunting the whales, their, their ship got stove in when he harpooned one of the whales. And, and so it got a hole. And it, it was leaking water. So they took it back to the main whaling boat to repair it. And you have to understand, it was at Chase's insistence, going back to the squall, they lost one of their whale boats there. It got smashed to bits. Um, so they were down a vessel, or, or they maybe lost more than one. I'd have to look back. But, but basically, they were down a vessel already, one of their whale boats. And they usually wanted, like any good sailors, you want to have redundancy. Um, and then they're out in the South Pacific. So they're down to minimum number of vessels. So to get it stove in, they needed to get it repaired. So he brought that whaling, you know, that whale boat back onto the big ship. They hauled it up, and then he started hammering in. I, I, I believe it was was canvas just to make a temporary repair, so that they could get back in the water and and go whaling, and because because they were, they were desperate to get whale at that you know whale oil at that point. And uh, so he's hammering away, and then this giant bull 
comes. And I mean, the descriptions of it are really good in the book, folks, and you really should read it. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that part of this justice, and I don't want you here for hours and hours and hours. But long story short, this giant sperm whale that they estimated was 85 feet long, this old scarred bull, he, he went around and, and charged and rammed into this Nantucket whaler, the whaling ship Essex, and hit it hard. And, and you got to understand, the whaling ship is moving forward, and this bull is going full speed towards it. So the impact speed, um, I think, was calculated around nine, nine knots, maybe more, which is fast. You don't want to hit things at that speed. And, and the, of course, the whalers were shocked, shocked. Apparently, there had been no you know, historical accounts of this happening before. Who knows? Maybe it had, and we just never heard about it because the, the men all died. But regardless, they were shocked because they never heard of this happening before. And then the whale goes around and hits the boat again, even harder. And, you know, and, and so it's and at that point, it staves in the side part of the bow of the whaling ship Essex. And the boat starts taking on water and listing. And in the end, the boat, you know, it capsizes. And so the whalers out in the other whale boats that are miles away, you know, they look back and, and then they can't see their, their ship. And they're like, what the heck happened? So they head over there. And of course, I mean, you can, you can only imagine like the shock, uh, the terror of being charged by the biggest tooth mammal in the world ever. And having it destroy your vessel that is the only life, you know, the only major lifeline you have. It's, it's your survival is 100% dependent on your ship. And it's gone. It's just insane. Now, the boat wasn't entirely gone right away. But they're not pumping it out. They're not able to repair it. So it, it was going to sink sooner or later. So they, they went about gathering supplies, what they could from the ship. Uh, one of the African-American sailors was really sharp. Like as in smart, and so in in the rush to grab stuff as this boat is sinking, actively sinking, uh, he grabbed a chest containing the captain's navigation tools and some of the charts, uh, which is probably the only reason that we even know about this story anyway, because they they wouldn't have been able to survive without navigation equipment. So very good on him grabbing that. Uh, they also grabbed other important supplies, and they ended up shoring up their whale boats by you know by taking some planking and adding it to the side of the boats so to make them a little more seaworthy for an ocean voyage. But then the decision came, what do we do? Do we head west? Do we, do we head to the, the nearest islands with predominant current and wind carrying us that way, which which makes sense, right? Like, like from a simple navigation aspect, that's the way to go. You don't want to sail against the wind and the current in an improvised whale boat that that has a shallow keel. It's not designed for that. It's designed to, it's just not designed to be a, a ocean going sailboat. That, that's what, not what they were designed to do. So do you head West? But then the problem was at this point in time, there was not a lot of real, there was a lot of anecdotal information on some of these islands, but there wasn't necessarily a lot of historical information or a really good anthropological information or, or even up to date news. I mean, it took years for news to get around places, certainly months. So they, their understanding was that a lot of the natives practiced cannibalism. There was a concern with the whalers that they were going to go and be eaten, ironically, because they do end up resorting to cannibalism themselves, the sailors do, the whalers. But there was concern by the whalers that they would go to these islands and just be, be eaten by the natives or horribly sexually abused by the, the natives because there was 
rumors of homosexuality, which was not a part of Nantucket, uh, at least not a part of their public culture. So there was a lot of concern in the whalers' minds for that. According to this book, the captain did want to go west to those islands, and but the chase and one of the other crew members who was, who was in charge, all they, they wanted to go east. They wanted to, to try to make for the Galapagos, try to make for the coast of Chile if possible, even though that was going to be a much, much harder journey. And the captain ended up going with the other two men, uh, which, is, which is interesting. In the book, they kind of get into some of the psychology here and why, why he would do so, what possible reasons there were. Uh, captain Polar did survive. You know, he, he did survive the trip. So, but I, I don't, I'm not sure how extensive the accounts are that we have from him personally. I mean, I, definitely he got interviewed, but, but, um, but yeah, why, why go, you know, that harder journey and, and it's tricky. And I, I do, I do want to understand, I, I don't want people thinking, oh, these guys were just a bunch of ignorant whalers and what were they thinking? Like, no, I mean, you, you can read accounts where they were clearly, you know, there's a mention in the book's notes that these captains were keeping track of the South American politics because it obviously affected where they landed. And, you know, they didn't want to be captured by by a country or a group that was at war. And, you know, so so they were they're keeping track of political events They're They were these were not ignorant people on purpose. But but obviously information was limited. Stories get exaggerated. Um, and quite frankly, there and, and some stories were true, though probably not as bad as they thought. So it's complicated. Yeah. And honestly, I'm, and I'm, I know I'm not doing the native tribesmen in the South Pacific justice, and I will happily do an interview or an episode at some point about them as I know more. So we're all limited in our knowledge and time and what we have. Uh, but regardless, because these whalers were as well, their choice was to head east instead of west or southwest to the nearest islands, and uh, sadly that made all the difference. The book kind of describes the food allotment. Uh, they brought some tortoises with them, which was you know, a smart move, uh, though it does later on describe how they, they probably should have cooked and eaten as many of the tortoises as they could have before heading out, um, but they could only fit, a, you know, so they could only fit a hand, you know, like, like two or three tortoises on each vessel. Uh, they had three whaling boats total to handle the, the entire crew, so they were crammed in there pretty tight. So there were 21 crew members. So I think by this point there was 20 crew members because I think one of the, the crew members jumped ship. And so they're down to 20 crew. So you had seven guys on each boat plus one I think had six crew members. And that was it. And so very tight quarters. Uh, yeah, the food allotment was not much. Not much at all. Uh, they did have a fair amount of water, which obviously you need. Uh, so a few barrels of water, but... Yeah, it's just a rough, rough, rough voyage, and they knew it was going to be rough. And then the the heart of the sea book kind of talks about the fact that these guys were going through nicotine withdrawals. You know, they they were all a lot of them were pipe smokers, and so they were obviously going through nicotine withdrawals, which doesn't help. You know, you're 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 starving. He kind of gets he gets into a little bit of the science behind starvation, some uh, modern studies that have been done on starvation, kind of how that works, and. You know, and even in controlled circumstances where like, oh, yeah, the guy, you know, like, like they had patients that they voluntarily were willing to lose 25 percent of their body weight. And they said even then they were just going insane. I mean, all they thought about was food. All they cared about. Like, like it was just, you know, so he goes in a lot of detail about what happens physiologically, mentally 
to you as you start to starve, as you start to die of thirst. And it's it's pretty brutal stuff. It's it's really bad. Um, it just sounds... Ugh, it, <laughs> it's not the way you want to go. Uh, it really, really isn't. And then um, at one point, like one of the boats gets attacked by an orca in the night, like, like a killer whale attacks them. So, which which is insane. I mean, it's just, it's these poor guys, like they've been attacked by a sperm whale and their boat destroyed. And and now they're being attacked by another whale. Uh, Luckily, you know, the whale doesn't, doesn't damage their boat too much and nobody gets, gets hurt. But still, I mean, you could just, you can only imagine. And and orcas are big animals. These are not tiny whales. You know, (laughs) they're, they are huge animals that, that are incredible. I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough, you know, doing the whale watching tours and captain me one of those boats you know, every so often the orcas will, will change direction. And I mean, so I've had them swim very close to my vessel when I've had to turn off the engines and make sure hundred percent, we're not going to hit them. And yeah, you see them up close and you really get an impression of, oh my gosh, these are, these are you know, very fast, powerful animals. And yeah. And I've seen orcas hunting. I was lucky enough on, again, on the Tully Moor, we were, we were following a pod of orcas and then they dove down and all of a sudden we saw thousands thousands of dolphins just racing for their lives heading towards us and i got video of this by the way i actually got uh, shaky hand camera footage i'm really sorry to say but i did get some decent video of it and there were two other pods of orcas that had been herding these dolphins towards our pod which was the attack pod and then our all our orcas dove up from the bottom and attacked and I mean, it was insane. Like just dolphins were, there's a picture of like an orca going straight up in the air and a dolphin flip sideways and you can see the blood on their mouths. And, and, and I got video of this orca completely hundred percent jumping out of the water, you know, chasing after another dolphin. It was wild. And, and they just, they feasted. It was, it was really cool. So yeah, they're, they're pretty big animals, very good at hunting. I would not want to be hit by an orca in any boat, much less a, a rickety whale boat out in the middle of freaking ocean. So they're out there and basically things, their progress was not very good at all, but they still stuck to their plan despite realizing that things are not going well. Conditions are, you know, the, the, the reality, you know, there were new realities that were setting in and they still chose not to change their plan. And, and I, I get it. I mean, it happens like, I've definitely been in situations where you come up with a plan and you just start putting more and more effort into making sure this plan's going to work, even when it obvious, it's pretty obvious that conditions aren't what you expected, things aren't what you expected, you have to reevaluate. And I mean, like most recently, you know, I was taking a tall, sh- I, I was anchored in Plymouth on a tall ship in Plymouth Harbor. And we chose to anchor to kind of the north part of the bay there. It's, it's, it's pretty well protected. But we had the wind that was expected. It was from the southwest. So actually, the wind was going to cross a huge area of this harbor. And the area we were in, it was a lot more shallow and a lot narrower than I anticipated. So we weren't going to have the kind of swing room that I had hoped. And just everything about the situation. Like, like, and then there was, more, there was current. There was also current that, that I hadn't expected to be quite as strong in that particular area. So everything was kind of making me realize, well, you know, gosh, we, we might we might get through this, but boy, it's going to be a sleepless night. And, you know, and oh, I, I was kind of just pushing, I was realizing like I was going to be pushing a lot of limits. And luckily we had another sailor on board, a, ca- a former captain who had a lot of experience. And he kind of said, you know, Johan, he didn't tell me what to do, but he just said, Johan, this, this whole situation, I got, I 
got a bad feeling about this. Like this, this just doesn't feel good. Uh, I'm concerned. And I said, you're right. I'm concerned too. So we sat back down. I was like, let, let me rethink this. So I pulled out the chart and then, I mean, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like once I started thinking, what can we do aside from this plan? All of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, well, we got enough daylight. Like, like It'll be easy to navigate and head out of the bay, which, you know, intuitively you think, oh, in a bay you're going to be sheltered. No, it's not true. So let's head out of the bay, head around the corner and just anchor off the shore where we have hillsides that are protecting us from the southwest. We have all the room in the world to drag. We have all the we could drag all the way to freaking Cape Cod into Provincetown, Cape Cod, you know, miles and miles and ten, dozens and dozens of miles. And we can let out as much scope in, you know, as much road, anchor road, as much chain as we want. And it won't matter because nobody's going to be there. And, we can, you know, so it basically led to one of the most comfortable sleeps I ever had, <laughs> you know, but but we, we could have had major problems in the night and, you know, talk about envelopes opening up, you know, uh, we'd have been pushing way too many envelopes being anchored where we were. So the point is, it's really important if you find yourself putting more and more effort into a plan because conditions have changed, you may just want to step back and be like, is there a better plan that we can come up with, reevaluate, listen to everybody else? Uh, but in this case, well, the, you, you know, the former crew member, the, the chief mate, Chase, and the other fellow were really pushing for the original plan, which sometimes is good. Sometimes it's good to stick with the original plan. But if things really are going south, you need to kind of reevaluate. And they did not. So they continued on the original plan. And they ended up getting pretty lucky in a sense. Uh, they were they were basically on the verge of dying of thirst and and, and hunger. And then they hit what we now know as Henderson Island. They actually thought they were on an island of, you know, a few, you know, a few dozen miles to the east. Henderson Island is just this, I mean, you can look it up in the South Pacific. It's, there's nothing there. No, no consistent fresh water, uh, not a lot of food. And apparently there, there were actually, the, the crew of the Essex didn't discover this right away to, that we know of, but there were other skeletons already on the island. And it, it would appear that this group of people had died of thirst. And that's all, there's not much more known about that group. I guess some examinations were done in the 1960s on the skeletons, which said, oh, I, I, there might have been some females in there. I, I, I don't remember exactly, but... But my first question was, well, has any DNA examination been done on the skeletons found on the island? Because we can learn a lot more today. So hopefully those skeletons are still there. Hopefully somebody smarter than me, more sciencey, has gone out and done uh, done DNA examinations of the skeletons. So we can actually trace who, who these people were, know what ship they were from, know, know what family they were from. Uh, that'd be really interesting history to know. Regardless, I don't think the Essex crew knew about the skeletons when they arrived. Um, they were just trying to survive. They got very, very, very lucky. They found a spring that bubbles up at low tide. And so they were able to refill their, their water barrels. They were able to, to get some fresh water and survive. Uh, so they got very, very lucky there. Some of the crew members decided to stay on Henderson, while the rest of them decided to go out and take their chances on the whaling boats. So three of the crew members decided to stay, which, which was good. That means less food you know, needed on the whale boats. And, um, you know, so fewer crew members to worry about, which was good. And so Henderson Island basically gave them a fighting chance. Uh, there was an interesting description in the book. Apparently there had been native, uh, there's, there's archaeological evidence of uh, native Polynesians 
having lived on Henderson Island for at least 400 years. They, they estimate between 800 and 1050 AD they would have arrived, but by 1450 they're, they were gone, uh, just not able to, to scratch out a living on, on the island. But the, the book, I thought, it had an interesting quote. It says, quote, In less than a week, the Essex crew had accomplished what had taken their Polynesian predecessors at least four centuries. By December 26th, their seventh day on Henderson, and their 35th since leaving the wreck, they had resolved to abandon this used-up island, end quote. So they, they, they ate everything they could and, uh, and took everything for their boats, and that was it. Uh, but the, the three men who stayed on the island did ultimately survive and were rescued by another whaling ship. Uh, but yeah, back to the whaleboats. So they headed out again with three whaleboats. And the book does a great job of describing how these, these boats tried to stay together. Um, though at one point they did have to say, because they couldn't afford to, to waste time and, and energy chasing after a boat that would get lost in the night or what have you. Um, they did have to make a pact saying, you know, we cannot, we can no longer turn around to try to help another boat that's in trouble. We've just all got to keep going or none of us are going to survive. So really tough, tough decisions. Um, and then unfortunately, after Henderson Island, uh, this is when we get into the cannibalism. And it's, it's pretty crazy stuff. It's, it's, it's pretty wild. Oh, where to begin? I mean, in one of the boats, the, the first two to be eaten were the African-American sailors. And it does kind of delve into some of the science where, like, there's some physiological reasons why these particular African-Americans might have not had the fat stores that the, the European, their European counterparts might have. Uh, there's also some, just some sociological reasoning behind it where they might not have been fed as well being foremast jacks, but also just, you know, being, being treated more as second-class citizens. They might not have gotten the same food as the Nantucketers, for sure, um, or their European counterparts in general. Uh, so there's some speculation there. Yeah, so I'm going to kind of delve into some of the details of, not of the, the cannibalism, it's, it's, well, it's pretty graphic stuff. Um, and the book gets into great detail about it. I think it's worth reading. Uh, but I'm going to delve into just some of the circumstances surrounding Pollard's boat. He's the captain of the, the whaling ship. And basically, they had been reduced to, to four men on their ships, down from seven. So they'd eaten three of them by this point. And the four of them are beginning to realize, like, they're, they're not going to make it. Like, the four of them are going to die or they need to eat somebody else. Uh, this, is, this is quoting from the book. Uh, then the youngest of them, 16-year-old Charles Ramsdale, uttered the unspeakable. They should cast lots, he said, to see who he be killed so that the rest could live, end quote. Yeah, so this is the famous, it's almost cliche, really, that, you know, people stranded out and they, they pull lots to see who's going to eat whom. And I know a lot of, I mean, I, I haven't been on a tall ship crew yet where it, it didn't come up at some point, like, hmm, who would be the first person that we'd all want to eat? And uh, we've had, you know, joking discussions about, about that. A little bit of gallows humor there, folks. But in this case, it's, it's truly tragic. There's, there's no other way to describe it. It's, it's horrible. Yeah, so they, they end up tearing up a piece of paper and put it, the pieces in a hat. And they end up drawing lots. And the lot falls to Owen Coffin. Uh, Owen Coffin was the, the nephew for, of Captain Pollard. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And then they have to draw lots to see who's going to shoot him. 
and kill him. And that lot falls to Charles Ramsdale, who was the fellow that came up with the whole idea of drawing lots in the first place. And but Ramsdale, he refused. He refused to do it. And, and I mean, you, you could see how how horribly depressed and, and just hopeless this this whole situation is. Like like in you know they're, they're quoting the the guys here in the book um, and what they're saying and and like. You know, it's, it says, uh, quote, but Coffin had already resigned himself to his fate. I like it as, and this is Coffin speaking, I like it as well as any other, he said softly, end quote. Yeah, so Ramsdale, who originally came up with the idea to draw lots, he got drawn to do the, the execution and to shoot the boy. And at first he refused to do it, but ultimately he did. And, you know, the description of it is, is just horrible. It says, uh, quote, then Coffin asked for a few moments of silence. So Coffin's the one who's about to be executed. Um, after reassuring the others that, in quotes, the lots had been fairly drawn, um, he lay his head down on the boat's gunwale. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, this is truly, it is, tr this part of the story is truly tragic. I mean, this poor kid, and, you know, the Ramsdale has to shoot the other kid, and it's just... I don't know. It's it's really sad. And uh, basically, they describe you know they coffin asks for a few moments of silence, and he reassures the others that the lots have been fairly drawn. You know, trying to give them no sense of guilt. And then he lays his head down on the boat's gunwale, and it's described. You know, he was soon dispatched. Paul would later recall, and nothing of him left. So just yeah, just absolutely sad. And that's this that's Captain's nephew. I can't imagine. Yeah, so the two boats, they, well, one of the boats is lost during the journey and was never found, was never found again, though there was a vessel that did show up on Henderson Island later with four skeletons. You know, I mean, I I think it'd be safe to question if that was the whaling ship Essex or not. I mean, it, it might have been. Uh, it might have just been, you know, they, they died of uh, dehydration. And, and that would be, you know, that, that would account for that. So who knows? Who knows? But there was a whale boat that did show up later. I, I don't know any more details than that, unfortunately. And I, I couldn't find any more details on it. But I, I definitely think that's an interesting piece of the puzzle. Yeah, so the two remaining boats, uh, one was led by Chase, the chief mate, and the other was led by Pollard, the captain. They did ultimately get rescued, but they, they separated so Chase's boat was rescued by an English, an English whaling ship from London called the Indian. And, and then Pollard's boat, as was described in the beginning of this episode, was, was rescued by the Dauphin. Yeah, and then, and then the book goes on to talk about just the consequences of homecoming and, and what that was like. It's really interesting. I mean, the community, you know, they, they, were, they were fairly accepting of what happened. I mean, it's... It, you know, it's obviously devastating to the community. And I think some of the, the Nantucketers, there, there were a couple of the survivors that they, they, the people in Nantucket had assumed were dead or didn't know. They had been told were dead and then they actually came back. And, and so that was thrilling to have them come, you know, be alive again. But yeah, Captain Pollard, he ended up, he actually captained another whale boat again. But unfortunately, he lost that one as well and then realized like, his, his whaling career was over. You know, that was it. He wasn't going to, I think he, I think that particular vessel, he, he ran aground on a reef in rough conditions. So he lost that boat. That was it. That was the end of his whaling career. He ended up being a night watchman 
and was still a respected member of the community, though there was a lot of gossip about him, which, yeah, just lots of nasty gossip, which, which isn't fair. Um, I mean, I, I can't stand gossip. I think it's one of the worst things in the world for communities, for helping people, for, for it just makes the world a miserable place. And the weird thing about gossipers is they, they actually, I've noticed that a lot of people believe what they actually say, even though they're making it up. And I've seen and heard that with my own ears. Like literally I've had, I, I remember I had a shipmate that made up a story about somebody that there was no way he could have known that was true at all, but it became the story in his mind. Like that was real. And so you could see people doing that and you know, it's, it's too bad. You know, one of the main stories is that all oh, Pollard had actually drawn the lot, but then forced his nephew to take it. Yeah. But then, you know, according to the, the rumor, the man whose place was taken by Owen Coffin had a wife and babies. And as everyone knew, the Pollards were childless. You know, so right off the bat, you can tell this is this is a little silly. But yeah, people, I don't understand it. I don't fully understand it myself. But uh, gossip is one of the worst things. I've seen whole crews divided and, and torn apart from malicious gossipers. It's just, it's a real, it's a completely unnecessary tragedy, in my opinion. And... But yeah, the, the men, a lot of the men went back and, uh, you know, they lived their lives as best they could. A lot of them went back whaling, had successful whaling careers. You know, in the long run, we kind of know the story. The, the, obviously, the whales were overhunted. Yeah, and uh, Chase, in the book, there's a picture of him. There's a portrait of him as a young man, you know, when he would have been at the height of his career. And then there's a, there's a picture of him, an actual uh, historic picture that they believe is him, which it sure looks like him. I mean, it's got the same nose and, you know, but it, I, I would, I would say it looks like uh, Owen Chase, but yeah, they, I guess as he grew older, he had, you know, he had headaches that plagued him ever since he had had the ordeal aboard the Essex and, and the, you know, the, the journey into cannibalism. And then by, it says by 1868, he was judged insane. And then in his house, you know, they found that he had hid a bunch of food in the attic. So obviously you can't go through an event like that and not have major trauma. But he was, you know, he was, he was definitely affected by it. Now, those of you listening to this story, uh, especially if you're American, you know that Herman Melville's famous tale, Moby Dick, was based off of the whaling ship Essex. And it, it was... Yeah, it, it was you know he when he went whaling, which was a few decades later. It obviously this story was at the forefront of people's knowledge and imagination, and apparently was was a big part of America. You know, every American learned the story about the whaling ship Essex, and I, I, I don't know. I fail to understand why we don't do it today. Like I think people could people can learn a lot from hardship. People can learn a lot from. There are many, many, many lessons to be learned from this. And honestly, if you think your life is bad, if you think if you think you're going through a bad time, it's probably not as bad as what these guys were going through for weeks and weeks and months at a time. So there is something to be said about putting things in perspective that way. But Herman Melville, yes, he wrote Moby Dick, based it off of this account. And uh, there's a couple. There's a great account in in the the book of. Uh, you know, a, a whale that sounds very similar because uh, there, there were other accounts of, after after this occurred of, of a whale, you know, st staving inside, you know, sinking other whaling ships, attacking them. And it did eventually get caught and killed. So they, they think. 
But uh, but I, I love Moby Dick. I read it before getting involved with Tall Ships, and I, if I remember, it's like 650 pages long, and it's detailed. Like there's a lot of details. You know, every other chapter is kind of about whaling and goes into that that kind of detail, which I think would be more interesting now to me, uh, knowing what I know, than in the past when when I wasn't so interested in that kind of history. But I can tell you the core of the book, which is probably about 120. 125 pages, if I remember correctly, the core story, which so it's not that long, is something that I wish everybody on the planet would read. I mean, what, you know, I, I remember reading Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Maybe I'll do an episode on it. I, I doubt it. But I just remember thinking, my God, I wish everybody would just, if they had an abridged version of it that was only the core story, not, not so much about the details of how they did the whaling, because... Ahab is, I mean, he's insane. Like he's so fixated and angry and, and just lost in his hatred for this animal. And, and it's, a, and, and, you know, and they make it mythical. I mean, it's this giant, giant, white, pale white whale that is just the personification of horror and, and monstrosity. And he cannot and it's really himself. He can't stop himself from hunting. And there's one very poignant scene, which I don't recall ever seeing in film or maybe I just don't remember. But one thing that really stuck with me reading the book, which I had never heard about in the general telling of the story, is Ahab cries. Like right before they're about to go and try to take out this whale, uh, one of the sailors, maybe the chief man, I can't remember, he goes up to him. He's like, stop, let's just go home. Why are we doing this? You have a family. You have kids. Like you don't know this up until this point in the story. Guys, family and kids, a wife and kids. It's like, let's just go home and leave. Why are we doing this? And Ahab starts to weep and cry. And he's like, he's so caught up in his own rage and hatred that he has to go out and kill this whale or, or die trying. It's insane. And I, I think there's a lot to be said. I think there are many cultures and many places in the world where that kind of story ought to be shared, you know. And, and I think every school kid in the planet should read that. I just know that that kind of obsession is within all of us. And yeah, don't let it destroy everyone around you, including yourself. It's insane. It's literally insane. And yeah, and same thing with this journey on the Whaling Ship Essex. Like every kid should. Yeah, it's it's pretty brutal. It's really brutal. It's really grueling. You can leave out some of the details of how to chop up a person and eat them. Like you don't need to include that. But just the fact that, my goodness, you do not want to be in this situation and your ancestors were, and you should respect like how precious our society is, how precious our food is, and how important it is, and you know, and what others go through, what others are going through in the world. I mean, you can't imagine until you read an account, you know, and then like all of a sudden it's like, oh man, this is serious. So, anyhow, I think they're important stories to be shared and important history. All right, everyone, I'm going to wrap up this episode soon, and I promise you I have the perfect ending, the absolute perfect ending to the episode, uh, so please stay tuned for that. But before I do, I want to tell you about an amazing podcast called Beyond the Harbor by Bradley Hall, and it's really cool. Uh, the reason I'm telling you about it is because he also did an episode on the whaling ship Essex. Uh, Mr. Bradley's podcast is all about kind of like the the gruesome scary sort of creepy stuff that happens out at sea if you ever see, heard of the podcast lore it's kind of like that but for the sea and if you're into history and can't get enough of this stuff just like me 
uh, I, rec- I highly recommend you check out his podcast because he's going to cover topics that I'm just simply not going to have time to get to ever. And that's that's not the focus of this podcast. It's not about necessarily the gruesome and scary stuff and creepy things that happen out at sea. Uh, though that said, I do have a few episodes planned that are going to make the Whaling Ship Essex kind of look like a walk in the park. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but yeah, Bradley's, uh, Bradley's podcast, Beyond the Harbor, I think is really great. I listened to his episode on the Whaling Ship Essex after I recorded this episode. One of the neat things about podcasting is you can go in and just edit stuff. Uh, so it did not influence me in any way, I promise. But yeah, his episode was really neat, and he does go into a little more detail on kind of what happens to you when you start to die of hunger and thirst. So, um, And definitely his other episodes are really cool. Like I said, he's going to cover stuff I will never get to in this podcast. So do check it out. That's Bradley Hall, Beyond the Harbor. And with that, folks, I'd like to introduce the only way this episode could end. I was going to record this episode a few days prior. And then the fates being what they are, I don't, I don't know why I hesitated. I chose not to, even though I had the time to do it. And I'm very, very, very thankful I did because I happened to go to a library and I was looking up nursery rhyme books for my boys. And I came across a Nantucket lullaby in this nursery book. Now, I don't know if there's a melody to it. I tried to look up the melodies for something came up with Nantucket lullaby, but it was a modern song. So if anybody knows the actual melody, I'd, I'd love to hear it. I'm sure it's haunting and slow, but even as a poem, it's wonderful to read. So I think this is the only way I can end this episode. Yeah, so I'm going to wish everybody fair winds and a following sea. And with that, I'd like to end it with the Nantucket lullaby. Hush, the waves are rolling in, white with foam, white with foam. Father toils amid the din while baby sleeps at home. Hush. The ship rides in the gale, where they roam, where they roam. Father seeks the roving whale, while baby sleeps at home. Hush, the wind sweeps o'er the deep, all alone, all alone. Mother now the watch will keep, till father's ship comes home.